I want to read to you from the book of Isaiah before we get started. Um, and I will read from 1 Peter later in the sermon. But I wanted to, uh, I love Isaiah 55. When I was in seminary, um, Dr. Gillespie used to call us to worship in chapel with the first two verses. And we read that as our call to worship this morning. Come with no money. Come and receive the goodness of God. But from the 12th and 13th verses of chapter 55, this to me is a vision an Old Testament vision, but I think we could claim it today with a lot of Old Testament language, but it's about what I see as a vision for peace. And it reads, For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all of the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Lord, that is blessing to the reading of that word today for us. Well, Peace Station, uh, just to give you where did that come from. Uh, in, in Venice, Florida, there, the old depot, which is the old, train, the old uh, bus station, was in disrepair for many, many years. And in the 60s, I understood. A lot of hippies and homeless people hung out there. And right on the floor of the dilapidated depot of the outside cement was a huge peace symbol that had been somebody had painted on there. So before it was restored, that peace symbol was the only thing that existed. After it was restored, interestingly enough, it was gone. But I thought, what a neat name for the Venice Depot, the Peace Station. I like that. I was raised, actually, during the peace movement in the 60s. Anybody else remember the 60s? I was in high school in the 60s uh, during what Walter Cronkite called the most turbulent decade of the 20th century. Now, if he were alive today, he'd be saying we might be in the midst of another one. But this was the, the decade of the hippie culture, as you remember, um, acid rock and roll, uh, drugs, m mystical religion. And oh my gosh, the fashions. No kidding? If you look at this, um, there's, there we are. Yeah? It reminds me of the chicken buses in Guatemala. But there, you remember these, you know, Woodstock, they might be on their way to. And then even the guys got into all this peace and love thing. I mean, we act, earlier when we were talking at the well, there were so many little kids who had no idea what I was talking about. Some of their parents might have remembered, but we actually dressed this way, right? And oh my goodness. I was really cool in the 60s. That was the, I found this picture, and I thought, oh, my gosh, that's the dress I made when I was off, going off to a trip to Europe. And it was all polyester. If I'd stood next to something, it would have melted. But it was, it was short, and we wore the little boots. And when we were in West, in West Berlin at a youth hostel on this, this trip, we all washed out our laundry, you know, and I hung it up, and I came back. Somebody stole it, actually. So I was... I, was, I had to wear something else, but that, does anybody remember this? In the white go-go boots? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the 60s really began a little more peaceful, and just as a quick history lesson, it did a quick turn uh, when the Civil Rights Movement really heated up, and it is interesting that here we are today, again, having to remind the creatures of God about civil rights, but also the Vietnam War hurled our nation into turmoil. And then, of course, the Beatles 
stirred up a different kind of turmoil in our home. Um, but also body bags were coming back from Vietnam, one of which was my boyfriend from high school. And this war divided us, if you remember, our nation's loyalties um, and the generations became more divided. I watched when I was at KU, University of Kansas, um, in that spring of 1969, Kent State was happening, there was a lot of agitation on campuses, and I watched the student union of the University of Kansas burn to the ground. Ironically, they were protesting for peace. But tearing up draft cards, some of my classmates fled to Canada, wielding woodstock, flower power instead of swords, and all that. And also, there was a lot of turmoil going on in the churches then, because people were divided over a lot of the things going on. Does that sound familiar still? Well, this was the symbol of our times. It's on the front of your bulletin, the peace symbol. And the motto of the decade was, make love, not war. And our anthem was, all you need is love. Remember? Da-da-da-da-da. But here's the reality that I find interesting. Since Jesus was born, and I'm way before that, but if you just took the day that Jesus was born, over 15,000 wars have been, have been fought since. And we see more on the brink right now. The New York Times once observed that, quote, peace is a fable, unquote. And so it has been as we read the word since creation. Five minutes after Adam and Eve were granted this beautiful place to live, strife and unrest entered into the human condition. They were anxious and afraid after they ate from their tree, and from then on they and their descendants had no peace. All through the Old Testament, we, we read about the turmoil that plagued the people of Israel. You know, from the book of Isaiah, as we read today, it was a mess in those days. We read after the exodus of Israel that they went immediately into some unrest when they complained against Moses about their lifestyle in the desert. Yeah, stiff-necked, that's the word. Later in exile, they were under Babylon, Babylonian captivity. They had no peace. When Isaiah wrote 50, that wrote his book, as from what we read today, it was the 8th century B.C., and it was, state, it was believed to have been the worst time in the history of God's people as far as the unrest was concerned. This was uh, a, a tiny little nation that had been racked by terrorism, uh, multiple assassinations, hypocrisy and arrogance. They had absolutely no peace. If you read the story of Israel, all through the Old Testament, it's like... Internally, there was war going on all the time among them, too. We have the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, and they were always fighting. They were plagued with instability and violence. They had corrupt king after corrupt king, worshipped idols. We have this conspiracy between the north and the south. They even conspired with their enemies against each other. Families and communities were fraught with deception and immorality and anxiety, if you read it. In fact, you read the Psalms. I love the Psalms because the Psalms always 
if you read them in such a way that they take you back to, be, to remember God's goodness, you still see you're remembering God's goodness in the midst of all this unrest. King David himself would write, I am dread to my friends. I am forgotten by them. I hear the slander of many, terror on every side. They conspire and plot to take my life. David had no peace. And spiritually, there was no peace in their souls. Now, we can have that happen to us as well. They proclaimed, if you read the beautiful proclamations in the Old Testament and the language they used to name God, they would proclaim God as the Holy One of Israel. Yet Israel had become a nation deaf to God's commands for them. And you know the story. They'd forgotten the covenant he had made with them. They were mired in their sin. So even as they sought peace and they desired peace and they hated the unrest, they still had this lifestyle that perpetuated it. But here we are, but, you know, here I am in the church. And you might say, well, Pastor Lynn, I mean, we have Jesus, right? Jesus, the Prince of Peace, historically and factually broke into that time that tumultuous time broke, broke in history to reconcile and to restore the turmoil to peace. He took on all of that on himself on the cross to bring us peace. Amen, and we can go home. Well, how's that peace going for you? Wars are still waging, raging. Our nation is probably as divided as it's ever been. We're saddened and outraged, and I, don't even, I can't even have words for all that went on in Charlottesville. And what about in here? On a personal level, are we not often still anxious and afraid about a lot of things? I can go there. If Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has brought us new life, why do we still default into this unrest and unhappiness? I don't th I'm, not, I'm speaking euphemistically here. I'm knowing most of you have the peace that passes understanding, but I don't know about you. In these times, I need to be reminded of what that is. In a recent article in the Huffington Post, they offered some clues as to why is there so much unrest in our lives? Why, do we, why are we so unhappy? And they said there are seven habits of unhappy people. The first is we live like a victim all the time. You know, it's, our life is hard and it's somebody's, we're victims of, of this, that, or the other thing. The second habit they bring is that people believe that Others can't be trusted. This, this lack of trust. Everybody was out to get them. I've been there. The third one would be always concentrating on what is wrong. I call those basement people. And every so often my husband, we don't even have a basement, he'll say, you're in the basement again. <laughs> That's when you're saying, yes, but. And it's a habit we can get into being critical all the time. The fourth one they mention is envy. Always comparing ourselves to someone else, and we're never quite content with who we are. There's, and it leads to jealousy, and it leads to strife. 
Another one they mention is drama. Just drama. It's stirring up all this drama and getting sucked into everybody else's drama, this dramatic display of despair. We see that in the media, don't we? And how it can stir that unrest up in us. They also mention fearing the future. Worrying about the future can cause a lack of peace. Or what about this? Having regrets about the past. And the last one they mention is just something that's just simple. Gossip. Having this habit of, of conversations laced with gossip or complaints or negativity. I, I think that the Huffington Post kind of nailed it. There's seven of these seven habits that cause our own that we can participate in. My mother used to say, Lynn, you're as small as the thing that's bothering you. So I had to think about that. And she's right. Because we unhappy people, when we go there, we're, we really don't have any peace, do we? And unhappy people with no peace within stir up strife all around them. And that can happen even in the church. So, we good people, now this is not euphemistic, this is personal. We here at Kirkwood, we know how to muster peace, right? And we do take it seriously to be peace. So how do we muster peace? Well, if you're like me, there's sometimes we seek peace in some futile ways. There may be alcohol or drugs, and of course for me, it's, I love the term that retail therapy. <laughs> Tomorrow is, T is Monday at TJ Maxx, anybody? <laughs> I keep my TJ Maxx bag in the car for my Mondays. I had to change my day off from Monday to Friday because it was getting so bad. My husband says, your day off is costing us a fortune. But that whole, that whole escapism, and I have to ask myself, and I did this as a discipline last year, a couple years ago, I thought, why is it that my car wants to go to Steinmart or TJ Maxx? I don't need anything. What's going on? And generally there's something going on that I'm trying to arrest. Some, hmm, takes your mind off of it. Retail therapy. Some of us just go into denial over the things that are troubling us or the world, putting blinders on, not talking about it, shoving it under the rug, or maybe we're really good at keeping peace. You know, you have Uncle Harry coming to that family dinner, and Uncle Harry's the one that always stirs things up, and you're saying to yourself, we're just going to keep the peace, we're just going to give him that extra piece of cake, uh, we're just going to do what it is we have to do to keep the peace. But that's not real peace. None of that sustains, does it? Because every Monday comes around again. Something else has happened during the week. And we keep sort of stuck in that place of unrest. And that's not living this new life that we have in Christ. But pursuing real and lasting peace is important to God. Especially for the church, because the church is the hope for the world. Hope for the world's unrest. God promised peace to us, and he commands it from us. So let's look a little deeper into this issue of peace that God intends for us. I think it, it's important to understand what is peace. We have sort of made it a simpy, wimpy word, haven't we? 
But when you look at the Old Testament, the word for peace is what? Do you know it in Hebrew? Shalom. I love to say that. Let's say that together. Shalom. It's just a peaceful word. But this word occurs over 250 times in the Old Testament in 213 separate verses. The general meaning of the word, you could probably say, yeah, you know, it's a state of calm, a state of tranquility, a lack of unrest. But it has so much more meaning. It's, there's a state of wholeness intended by the word shalom, the state of being complete. Think about that for a minute. Uh, it also means unity. It means the restoration of relationship. It can be nuanced to mean fulfillment, completion, maturity soundness. When the word shalom is used in the Bible, it means it's something sound, solid, secure. It means welfare, friendship, agreement, success, and prosperity. You see, shalom is a much richer concept than just making nice. Now, the New Testament picks it up from there because the New Testament word translated into Greek, erene, comes from the root word shalom. And of course, remember, the New Testament church was Jewish, so they spoke Hebrew. So they just took that word, but when it got translated into Greek, they just kept running with it. It's found 91 times in the New, York, in the New Testament, and it's one in our text today from 1 Peter. In addition to the blessings and prosperity for unity, here in 1 Peter, you're going to hear it described also what peaceful conduct is, what does it mean to be shalom in our relationships. Now, we may not be able to control how our governments treat one another, but we can consider how we pursue peace among one another and in the church. So listen now to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. See if you can see some clues to how we can be in shalom with one another. Finally, all of you, have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For, and whenever you see quotes, it's usually something that's come from the Old Testament. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let's read this last one together. Let them seek peace and pursue it. You see, we think, is this possible? Well, anything is possible with God. But the fact is that apart from God, there is no real peace in this world. There's no real peace in your hearts and in your lives. There's no real peace in the church. Real peace begins only in God. Real peace is possible only through the grace of Jesus Christ. And real peace is sustained only by the Holy Spirit. So people of God, we have a corner on real peace because it belongs to every one of you and every Christian who has accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in their life. 
They have received the peace that passes understanding, the peace that was intended to us. We have that peace, as Paul would write in Colossians, the peace of Christ to which each, indeed, you are called. You see, God is peace. God is shalom, among other things. God is love. God is joy. But God is peace, and God gives peace to us. And the word for us today, I think, is that God commands us to pursue shalom with and for others all the time. All the time. In our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Like Peter, Paul would challenge us in Ephesians. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Again in Romans, he writes, let, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification of the church. So we've been given peace by God, who is peace. We have the Prince of Peace living in us, and by the power of, of the Holy Spirit, the ability to be peace. But how is that broken down in a practical way? Peter sort of helps us with this. So what do we do? I think the first thing we do is we gather together. Here we are giving God the glory, giving the Prince of Peace the honor he deserves, and letting him fill us together as the body of Christ, unified in this peace. We do that as we come together and worship. But then each of us, I think, individually, and I, this speaks for me, we need to stop probably every day and reclaim that peace that Jesus gave us when we first believed. Do you remember Jesus' words? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Come to me, all you who are in turmoil, and I will grant you shalom. A shalom that passes all understanding. A shalom beyond the wimpy keeping nice. God shalom. And then I think we need to read the Word of God over and over and over and listen carefully to all those promises that God has given us in his Word and take them to heart. He has told you he will make an everlasting covenant with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is peace. And he'll continue. And to me, when I read the Lord, that the Word even in the midst of all those crazy stories about wars and everything, and you read those kernels of promise and hope, and to me, it gives my soul this peace. To know that through his word, we know that we are and always will be safe and secure in him no matter what our circumstances, because God loves you, and God loves me. And sometimes in these crazy lives, God may be the only one in the moment that loves us. I think we also need to humble ourselves before him and just literally seek God's forgiveness. You know, we say this corporate prayer of forgiveness together every week, which is important. But every day, to be on our knees, examine our hearts before God and 
come to grips with it. Those bad habits that stir up strife in our lives and around us and in the church. Maybe it's losing the phone number of one of those bad relationships. It might be giving up one of those habits. Isaiah writes in also in the middle of chapter 55, he says, Seek the Lord where he may be found and call upon him when he is near. Let them, us, return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them, on us, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I think also, in addition to that repentance of our own sin, that we need to forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. Paul always began his letter with letters with grace and peace to you. Peace always followed grace. Do you think about it for a minute, the grudges that we hold on to, how much unrest that leaves in our spirits, doesn't it? The, the Bible says if you, whatever you, re, you loosen on earth, you loose in heaven. I mean, if we give up the grudges, I think there we, we would have more peace in our lives doesn't fix everything. In fact, I would go so far to say as forgiveness is a fundamental part of God's ultimate plan for our lives. It's a key component required to reconcile our life with God. If we want peace with God, we need to have peace with one another through forgiveness. And finally, Peter says to us, speak blessings to each other. Not evil. Oh my gosh, isn't it so tempting to get, to get even? Really? Or withhold that word, that good word that could be given. But the Bible says, speak blessings to one another, not evil, not ill. Bless one another with kindness. This is our witness, and as a review again, how can we have peace in our life? to remember the peace of our salvation in Jesus Christ, to read God's word and be reminded again of the promises, to humble ourselves and repent to God. He's got open arms with us, to forgive one another and to bless one another. I've said this before. I think every time I'm with you, people are watching us. They're watching how the church treats one another and how desperate they are for peace. To watch the church Live into God's peace is a powerful antidote. Jesus himself told us that we would have conflict, we would have trouble in this world, disagreements in our families, communities, and yes, in the church, but remember our peace with God and the peace of God is what rules our hearts. So in the midst of all the turmoil, swirling around us, we come to the peace station, this depot, if you will, where we connect with one another again before we go on our way. And right in the middle of us is that peace symbol, if you will, of God's love and care and hope. Right here we come to peace station to find the peace that only he can give and be reminded again that we are loved and forgiven where the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ falls on us again, where forgiveness and mercy are shared as we face the cross again together in humble gratitude and thanksgiving. So, And here at Peace Station, that is Kirkwood, 
the love of the eternal God unfolds us all again, and we are reminded that he has never given up on us, and he's never going to give up on his world. So here at Peace Station, we enter the fellowship of the Holy Spirit again, who binds us together in power and in purpose and in peace, so that we may not only seek the peace of God, we not only find the peace of God, but we become the peace of God as we go from here. As Isaiah wrote, you shall go out in joy and be, and be led forth in peace, the peace that transcends the chaos of our times. That's being the church. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we do come seeking many things from you each week, certainly to be in each other's presence and to love one another. And so we thank you that we can claim once again you are the peace that passes understanding. And so we claim it, we believe it, and we will go forth from this place in peace. In Jesus' name.